Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. I'm sorry if my voice sounds a little bit strange today, but I'm shaking off a cold. It's not that I'm doing my best to imitate Barry White or anything like that. Uh, and I thought rather than starting off with some depressing stuff, as I have a tendency to do, I thought I'd mention a nice positive tale, one that I've already posted online, about some small Australian drones possibly being used in a pretty devastating attack on Russian aircraft outside the city of Kursk, an attack presumably that Ukraine is behind, though they're sticking with their normal practice of not commenting on many of these military operations. Anyway, in the early hours of August the 16th, Five combat aircraft were severely damaged, who knows, possibly beyond the, the point of being repairable. They were four SU-30s and one MiG-29, and as well as that, two Pantsia uh, short-range air defence systems were hit, and the radar for an S-300 surface-to-air missile battery was also damaged. We know this because the information comes from an authoritative Russian blogger. So it's it's not 100% reliable, but everyone is treating this as a matter of fact. And from within Ukraine, there's been indirect confirmation of the attack. There's also been indirect confirmation that it could have been Australian technology because there have been references to UAVs made out of cardboard. Now, there's a Melbourne company called SIPAC, and they were awarded a contract several months ago to supply these systems to Ukraine. They're quite unusual. The drones, are, it's a family of drones, okay? And I think the marketing name that covers a couple of them is Corvo, C-O-R-V-O. And they're distinguished by a couple of things. Mainly, or most noticeably, they are cheap and they come flat-packed, like an IKEA chair or something like that. I hope they're easier to assemble than IKEA. You know, I hope the instructions are clear. Uh, apparently, a single soldier in the field with pretty much no previous experience can open up the package and within an hour completely assemble an electrically powered drone that can carry a five kilo payload. The range is a trade-off payload, the bigger the payload, the shorter the range, that sort of thing. Typically, we're talking about a range of 100 kilometres, slightly more, slightly less, depending on stuff like headwinds and things like that, and an up to five kilogram payload. Now, that might not sound like a lot, but given that the warhead on a Javelin anti-tank missile is about 2.7 kilos, and that gives you a pretty impressive bang, or technically two bangs, it's a tandem warhead. Even a very small drone with that sort of payload theoretically could do significant damage to a fairly thin-skinned combat aircraft. And the other benefit of a drone that is so small, principally made out of cardboard and slow-moving, is that it's actually very difficult to detect to shoot it down, um, it's hard to imagine any sort of known uh, 
uh, guided missile with a seeker head would be able to lock onto it and destroy it. It would have a negligible radar signature. You might be able to shoot it down with some sort of gun system, but again, only if you detected it in time. And not only is it, by the way, these noises are my cat climbing all over the computer. Welcome to my life, a cold and a cat that wants to check out exactly what I'm doing. Okay, now, where was I with these small drones? Okay, because they are made out of cardboard and slow moving, they're ideal, as it turns out, for fooling even the most sophisticated air defense system, because when you think about it, they've got a signature that is not that much different from a very large bird. And with an air defense system, one of the challenges is to minimize the number of false alarms that you're receiving. You don't want to be going to battle stations and, you you know, every 10 seconds when something is discovered and then you find out that it's not an aircraft, that it's something else. Now, when you introduce a whole lot of filters that screen out the size of the radar return, the speed at which the object is moving and various other things, that, that also applies, by the way, to infrared signatures, you're left with a situation where the air defense system is just not going to pick up a little drone like that. So could it have happened? Yeah, you bet. And because the company SIPAC has been exporting uh, these at a rate, I believe, of 100 kits per month for the last four or five months, you'd think that, uh, that Ukraine has figured out a clever way of using them to attack high-value targets inside Russia. Now, there's been a bit of speculation that uh, maybe they couldn't have been launched from Ukraine because of their range. Maybe they would have had to have been launched within Russia by a dissident group or Ukrainian special forces or something like that. In a sense, I think it's immaterial because the it seems the political sensitivity that used to surround donated Western equipment being used for attacks on Russian soil, which was a no-no at the outbreak of the conflict, all of that seems to be dying away for the same, well, for the reason that the fears of the conflict being escalated, disappearing in the sense of what further escalation is possible? What more could Russia be doing that they're not already doing? short of, you know, stepping up to nuclear war, and you're not going to do that because uh, a drone has destroyed a few of your aircraft. So, as I say, it's a positive story for the use of Australian technology, and at the same time, I'll mention another Australian company that's contributing uh, to Ukraine's military fight back against the Russian invasion. That's EOS, based in Canberra. A lot of people are familiar with EOS. They do remote weapon stations. They are involved in a US program that is known as Slinger, and that's a combination of the EOS remote weapon station, I think a radar from a different supplier, and a 30mm Bushmaster cannon from Northrop Grumman, previously ATK. And EOS is also selling a larger number of systems called an R400, that's their own system that has a different sensor pack, same Bushmaster cannon. And the idea is 
that these are air defence systems that can be mounted on vehicles of opportunity. They could go even on a large ute. They could go on a donated M113. They could go on a captured BMP-3, of which Ukraine, I believe, has a large number of them. Basically, at a relatively low cost, I, I don't know what the figure is, but everyone says it's a low-cost solution, uh, you can come up with a very powerful short-range air defence system. The Bushmaster Cannon has an effective range of about three kilometres, and if anything comes within that space, whether it's a, a small drone, a larger drone, a cruise missile, a helicopter, it's going to be in big trouble. And when Ukraine is in a position to field several hundred of these things, and they're in the process of doing so, it's going to be a very, very powerful asset. Now, when I mention EOS, I'll also say that they're working, and they recently demonstrated to the media, I wasn't able to make the, the trip, unfortunately, um, demonstrated a laser-based version of their system. I've seen it demonstrated in Canberra, so I can assure you that it works. High-power focused laser, and the benefit of a laser is once you get all of the technology right, you've got an almost infinite supply of shots. As long as you've got electricity available, a generator powering your system, you can keep firing your laser you know, a couple of times per second, and uh, it can destroy targets. Again, if we were to talk about a, like a you know a quadcopter thing, they're in common use in Ukraine. That's that's out to a distance of about a, a kilometer. I have to say, in that context, good Australian technology. I noticed a few months ago that Defence announced that they were paying Kinetic, the UK company, or paying their Australian subsidiary, thirteen million dollars to further develop their laser work. Now, I don't want to sound ultra nationalistic about this. Kinetic are very, a very good company. They're you know good local players. They employ Australians. But I do wonder, why is it that they received 13 million bucks, but EOS, which is fully Australian-owned so far, seem to have missed out? I'll also add on, look, all of these drone attacks that are going on, principally Ukraine, that we know about success ones, Ukraine against Russia. Russia is also using lots and lots of drones now, particularly, again, these little quadcopters that can carry a grenade. And I've seen accounts from Ukraine service people at the front line occasionally referring to the sky as being black with drones. Now, even if that's a slight exaggeration, clearly these things are being used in massive numbers. And I ask where is the ADF with anti-drone programs? And the answer is nowhere. To my knowledge, the Army doesn't have anything at all, nor does the Air Force for airfield protection. And hey, if it were me, that, that would be a high priority in the event of some sort of serious conflict. Somebody lands some special forces people near an airbase and they could wreak absolute havoc. Navy does have some organic capability in the form of close-in weapons systems, the Raphael Typhoon and, and Mini Typhoon, but that's really not a lot when you consider the scale of the threat. 
I think that that should be a slightly higher, or it should be a high priority for the ADF. I, I just don't know where it sits. I have no idea why they seem to be so reluctant to move on what is a very obvious threat and one that can be magicked up by any opponent, really, within a matter of weeks. I mean, we're talking pretty low-tech quadcopters here that you can buy from a hobby shop. Now, moving right along, I said that we weren't going to talk submarines, but let's have another look at the Hunter-class frigate program, because that has come up recently with another hearing by the Joint Committee of Public Accounts and Audit. It's a kind of pretty dry title, but uh, the committee is having a look at the Hunter-class frigate program, triggered, I think, by a review done by the ANAO, which raised a number of of questions, and there were hearings of the Public Accounts Committee in May that amplified audit office findings. And there are several important things that were not involved in the evaluation or were done badly. The, The first and possibly most salient is that there was no value for money assessment, which is unique in the history of defence contracts. It's probably unique in the history of government purchasing because every purchase, whether it's for a biro or for a nuclear-powered submarine, there is meant to be a formal value for money calculation involved in it. That was not part of of defence's evaluation. And there's no credible explanation for why that happened. No one knows because, guess what? A number of critical documents, records, cannot be found. And it turns out that all of the people currently in Navy and CASG, no one of any seniority, was involved back when critical decisions were taken in 2018. So that's a real mystery. Uh, There's also, it's been suggested that Defence discounted the BAE systems price by 10%. Defence can fiddle with prices. They do sometimes make different assessments about risk and introduce their own numbers. I've normally seen that leading to a price increase. I'm not aware of a a 10% discount. And the other part of it, all three designs, that was basically the F-100-105 Navantia series, the Hobart-class destroyers, air warfare destroyers, by their more formal name, the Italian multi-purpose Frem frigates, which several have been built and are serving, they were assessed as being mature, fair enough, but then the Type 26, production of which had only just commenced, was assessed by defence as being at the same level of maturity. It's just crazy stuff. And I think that the... Now, now whether any of this would have made a difference to the eventual outcome, I don't know, because the Royal Australian Navy was just very keen on the British ship for a number of reasons, We can go into all of that on a future occasion. It's another, it'll take a lot of time and I'll just park it there for the moment. At at the very least, I think that this uh, review is going to 
come to some scathing conclusions about the way that defence handled the evaluation uh, and will make a whole lot of recommendations. And I have to say that the reaction of defence people has been one of embarrassment. There are a lot of people there who are clearly uncomfortable with what happened and I th- and they've indicated that they are receptive to suggestions that will help them improve the situation so that they are never in the same position again. A couple of days ago, uh, Ben Hudson, the CEO of BA Systems, appeared. Hello, Ben, if you or your people are listening. Ben gave a robust defence of the the project, emphasising local content and that it will eventually be an excellent ASW ship. He wasn't or wouldn't say what the full load displacement of the hunters would be, which seemed a little bit strange, but it might be that because this is an evolving situation, you could probably calculate quite accurately the light ship weight, but you still don't know how much stuff Navy is going to put on it when they take it to sea, which is the basis on which the full load is calculated. So we'll continue to to watch the space. Uh, at the end of the last episode, I said that I was going to say a few things about ADF helicopters. I don't have a lot of time remaining, but at least I'm going to make a start. And hopefully, for continuity reasons, in the next podcast, I'll be able to go into it in a lot of detail. What sort of sparked this, really, even though I've written about this extensively for years, was there was a sad news item on the 30th of August on the ABC that five Taipan multi-role helicopters that had been involved in the Talisman Sabre exercise that had the tragic crash of another Taipan with loss of four lives, that these five Taipans were on flatbed trucks, low loaders, being taken from Proserpine all the way back to Townsville, a road distance of about 260 kilometres. Now, because four service personnel were killed and the accident is under investigation, I have to tread very lightly. I've said before on this topic, I'm not going to, I cannot definitively say what caused the accident, but the flying conditions were were terrible that night. In fact, the weather was so bad, as I understand that that all of the ships in the exercise were involved involved in Hellersman Sabre. They were instructed to remain at anchor. Terrible conditions, nighttime, two helicopters, and one tragically crashed. Now, no one else has grounded their Taipans. New Zealand did very briefly for about two days, but they resumed flights. Um, Everyone else around the world continued to operate them. And so I do wonder about the logic of the continuing grounding of the helicopters by the ADF or by Army in particular, And I wonder if we've reached the point in the project where having made the in-principle decision that these helicopters are going to go and are being replaced by Black Hawks, that Army is kind of hoping to get rid of them on the quiet, hoping that Taipan is just a forgotten memory and they can get on with life with the Black Hawks. I'll conclude by saying that, again, with the DSR and our circumstances and the need to ramp up capability, I would have thought that a very obvious way, and I suggested it to no less a figure than Lieutenant General Simon Stewart 
chief of the army, keep both fleets, keep Taipan and Tiger, and then by all means, if you want Apache and Black Hawk, um, add those to the mix. You basically double the capacity of army combat aviation simply by not retiring Tiger and Taipan. Both classes are now uh, operating at 70% availability, which frankly is better than what you're going to get with uh, both Black Hawks and, and with Apache. With all of the money that's been invested, all of the infrastructure, I'll pick a number and see if anyone disputes it. I would say that to keep Tiger and Taipan operating for another 15 years might cost you around about 200 million bucks a year, which, I mean, it's significant, but compared with the overall defence budget and compared with the overall increase in Army's capability, I think that that's something well worth doing. Australia is not very good at mothballing stuff or post-retirement, putting it in a warehouse somewhere just in case it tends to go to public parks and put up on sticks and things like that for people to take photos of. Um, in the case of Tiger and Taipan, which genuinely do have a lot of life left in them, I think that that would be something well worth considering. And in that context, Canberra bubble I've heard a few people recently, probably coincidentally, talk about the need for a National Guard-type organisation. And I think also that's well worth thinking about. That's sort of an option B, option C for the helicopters rather than retire them completely. You could leave them in service. Or if we had a National Guard organisation, then those helicopters could go to it, to them, for them to use. That's how the US operates very successfully. I'll uh, leave it at that. Um, hopefully for the next podcast, I will be sounding normal. Thank you for listening. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.